0: Disappearance of Thomas Carlton. The Post-Standard News of October nineteenth, nineteen ninety-three, writes: Search keeps hope alive for hiker. More volunteers are sought to lurk for the man missing in the Adirondacks for eight days. Hiker Thomas Carlton has been missing for eight days in the Adirondack high peaks. Thirty-six forest rangers and volunteers combed the rugged terrain Monday for the seventh consecutive day without finding a trace of Carlton. Today they will return again. His wife, when she travelled to the Adirondack and met with the rangers, said she was overwhelmed with a search effort to save her husband's life. The newspaper said Forest Rangers appealed for more volunteers to help search a 100 square mile area. One of Carlton's friends, David, spent Saturday and Sunday looking for his friend. Carlton parked his car, October 5th, at a popular starting point for many High Peaks hikes. He planned to hike by himself in the mountains over the Columbus Day weekend. Last Monday, when he failed to return, his wife contacted authorities. Then, the Buffalo News reported couple spot missing hiker. State forest rangers and volunteers refocused their search for Thomas Carlton after a couple told authorities they had seen the missing hiker in the Adirondacks two weeks ago, a state official said. The man and woman said they saw a man fitting Carlton's description on October the ninth at a lean-to on the Indian Pass trail about four miles southwest of where Carlton parked his car that day said R. W. Groenman, a spokesman for the State Department of Environmental Conservation. The couple subsequently confirmed that the man was Carlton when authorities showed them a flyer with his photo on it. Meanwhile, dozens of volunteers had assisted park rangers in a methodical and often what was described as a gruelling search for nearly two weeks. Then, fast forward to December 2002 and the Siracus Post standard reported, Thomas Carlton declared dead by a judge after being missing for nearly four years, after last being seen in a remote area near Lake Placid. He's never been found. The Supernatural Rescue of a Boy in a Wooded Ravine On June 6th 1994, Christine Scubish and her three-year-old son Nick set off from her parents' home in Sacramento to embark on a drive to Carson City in Nevada, where Nick's father lived. Christine was a part-time waitress, and she had just qualified as a paralegal. It was said that she was hoping to start a new life with Nick's father. Off they set, with her 1991 Hyundai packed with all their belongings, although Christine didn't seem to have packed food and drink for the journey, as we will later learn. Christine apparently planned to stop off to see friends briefly along the way before carrying on to Nick's father's home. Their journey to a new life took them along Highway 50 through the wilderness of the Sierra Nevada mountains, once a place where highwaymen roamed to rob stagecoaches in the remote hills and woods. Christine and her son never made it to Nick's father and so would begin a very mysterious tale in which, for a while, It appeared that Christine and her son had vanished entirely. Having left their home in Garden Valley, some time later they stopped for gas at Place de Vilschel garage. When Christine's mother did not receive the telephone call she had been expecting from her daughter to tell her that they had arrived, Christine's mother contacted the authorities and a search for Christine's car began, but it was all to no avail. Meanwhile, a lady called Deborah Hoyt was 45 miles west of Placerville in Sacramento, visiting relatives, when she woke up in the middle of the night. She'd had a disturbing dream, which gave her a compelling feeling that she must drive along Highway 50. She later said, "'It felt like there was something pulling me up the mountain.' So, waking in a panic, she insistently woke her husband and told him they must go now,' even though she hated driving at night and did not like driving along Highway 50. Her husband tried to persuade her to wait until morning, but she was adamant, and so in the darkness they set out along Highway 50. Later, Deborah told her husband to stop the car. It was impossible for Deborah to know, but this would turn out to be the exact spot from which Christine and her son had vanished. No one knew this at the time, Deborah didn't know, she had been asleep in bed and she had never heard of Christine. What caused Deborah to stop their car at the exact spot of Christine and her son's disappearance was almost beyond belief. As the car made its way along in the dark towards winding bullion bend, Deborah would later explain to newspapers that she and her husband suddenly saw a figure in front of them lit up by the headlights of the car. The figure appeared to be a naked woman lying down in the road. Thinking at first it might be a mannequin, or someone playing a joke on them, perhaps trying to lure them out of the car to commit a crime upon them, they nervously stopped the car. On closer inspection, they realised it was not a mannequin, it was a woman, who was very much dead. They got back in the car, and in dreadful shock, they drove to the nearest garage to find a payphone, and called the Sheriff's office. At 3am... The official statement said the El Dorado Sheriff's Department heard from the South Lake Tahoe couple, described by officers as level-headed, who reported a nude woman on the highway's shoulder. A deputy, assisted by two California Highway Patrol officers, duly went out and searched the stretch of road. El Dorado County Sheriff Howard Wilson said, There was nothing there to indicate an accident, no skid marks or anything. And more importantly, there was no woman. All they could see was an empty road. Deborah Hoyt implored them. She and her husband had seen a naked dead woman on the road, and they had not imagined it. She insisted. But the officers felt they had no choice but to leave, nonplussed. A little later, and nothing to do with the sheriffs involved in the search, Deputy Sheriff Rich Strasser found his curiosity aroused. He was aware of the report of a missing woman and child, and he wondered, could there be anything to the report from Deborah Hoyt and her husband? Could there really be a dead-looking woman up there on the road? He felt compelled to go and investigate, and so he drove out to Bullion Bend. Looking along that lonely stretch of road, he too found no dead woman. But what he did spot was a single, child-sized shoe. He looked all along the road to see if he could spot anything else. And then he looked over the steep embankment behind where the shoe lay. To his horror, he saw a wrecked car lying in the grassy dip with its roof torn off. Quickly, he scaled down the embankment and peered inside the vehicle. He saw the body of a woman still strapped in her seatbelt in the driver's seat. He could see she was clearly dead. He looked into the back seat and he saw a tiny child curled in a foetal position. It was a little boy and he was naked, his clothes piled neatly beside him. He was also dead, or at least so Strasser thought until he leant over the child's body and called out to him. To his utter astonishment, he heard a sound. Later, Strasser said, "'Until I was right on top of him, searching for vital signs, I believed him to be dead.' but when Strasser called out to him, the little boy replied with a sigh. Strasser said he saw no sign that the little boy had access to food or drink in the days following the accident. It was reported in several of the newspapers, a preliminary check of the accident by California Highway Patrol investigators suggests that Christine Skirbisch apparently fell asleep while driving. The deputy said the impact was enough to toss Nick's shoe onto the side of the highway. The Santa Cruz News said, Report of a naked lady leads deputies to boy trapped in car five days after their car plummeted 40 feet down a steep embankment. Placeville Mountain Democrat reported, The accident was enough to kill any occupant in the vehicle, so it was a miracle he survived. After Strasser discovered the boy, the emergency services arrived and he was taken to hospital. He was suffering from hypothermia and dehydration, after being in the car for five days without food and water yet unexpectedly he only had minor scratches and bruises from the crash that had killed his mother almost instantly it seemed impossible that the child could have survived such a crash as the vehicle had careered off the highway and crashed head first down the hill no one could work out why the child was naked, although it's very possible that when hypothermia set in, he'd taken off his clothes, as his body would have become increasingly hot, and he must have very neatly, for such a young child, placed his clothes beside him. The doctors all agreed that had he not been found when he was, he would have deteriorated and quickly died, because he was turning blue when he was found. As Nick was covered in hospital... He was heartbroken to be told by his family that his mother was now in heaven, but he also began to explain that he had left the car and climbed up the hill and down again. This shocked the family, and they could hardly believe this could have been possible. The hill was so steep, and he was so young. Kingston Gleaner newspaper said Karen Nichols Daniels, Nick's grandmother, told them. He said there was a tree lying on his mummy, and he said he couldn't open the door. And he continued explaining that, at times, he saw a bright ball of light floating above him. Inside the light, he said, he could see the silhouette of a woman's figure. the deputy sheriff said to the Kingston Gleamer, I think something special happened here. It's almost like a miracle. It's a whole series of events that I just can't explain. I just don't have the answers. Not only had Deborah Hoyt felt drawn to that stretch of road from many miles away, with no knowledge of the accident, but what Nicholas had to say about it was beyond rational comprehension. His grandmother too had her own story. She explained that she'd been having dreams in which her daughter was calling out to her from a road. And Deborah Hoyt continued to insist that the body she and her husband saw on the road really had been there. She said, "'I saw a naked lady lying on the road. Her face was towards me, on her side. Her knees were slightly bent, and she had one arm underneath her head.' And one arm on her head. So it's almost as if the spirit of Christine had tried to warn and alert people that her son was in peril and they had to come and save him. Lee Peltier was 59 years old at the time of his disappearance. He was a man of great experience when it came to the outdoors. He was an avid hiker and hunter and he often went out hunting on the 100 acre family farm where he lived in Lake Elmo. It was this experience and the sheer lack of any clues as to his whereabouts that makes his disappearance all the more unsettling. It was a very cold November day in 2018 when Peltier and three of his friends set out. One of his friends was John Warner, who was one of the owners of the cabin where they were staying when they made their trip to the Nomadi State National Forest. On the day Lee Peltier vanished, he and Warner had headed towards a pond where they had a simple plan, his daughter Megan would later say. Peltier was going to walk to a slightly lower elevation, where he would flush out any deer that were drinking from the pond, which in turn would send the deer in the direction of Warner. However, after waiting for quite some time, with no deer coming his way, Warner was left feeling puzzled. He reasoned to himself that perhaps Lee might have gone trailing a solo deer on his own, It's common practice for hunters to fire three shots into the air to alert others if they're in trouble, but Warner had heard no shots. As lunchtime approached, Warner returned to the cabin, but there was no sign of Peltier there, and all afternoon Peltier didn't show up, and as day turned into night, his companions began to worry. There was no cell phone coverage at the cabin, so they couldn't call him, and they couldn't call for help and So they built a bonfire and listened out for any rifle shots. But none came. As darkness fell, so did the rain, which got progressively heavier. Then came the snow. The temperature dropped and the hazardous weather conditions forced the men to become gravely concerned for Peltier. They had no idea where he might be or what had happened to him, and so they decided to drive out until they could get a phone signal. As soon as they could... They called the authorities. Shortly afterwards five officers from the Pine County Sheriff's Office arrived at the cabin and a search on foot and by ATV began. They could find no sign of Peltier and no clues either. Soon there would be hundreds of people scouring the forest for him but all to no avail. According to Fox News the search included Pine County Sheriff's Department and a canine search team As the search continued, one theory developed that Peltier must have fallen into the pond, but inquiries with his cell phone provider showed that his phone was still working until 5.30 in the morning, when the phone died. If he had fallen into the pond during the day, his phone would have stopped working much earlier. Peltier's cell phone records showed he'd tried to call his friends during the afternoon, but of course there was no signal. With the searches yielding no answers, his friends and family were left upset and baffled. Two years on, those sentiments remained. KBJR News reported, mystery unsolved. It's been two years since the Twin Cities man disappeared in the Naradji Forest while deer hunting, and his family are still looking for answers. Peltier's daughter, Megan de Corset, told them the men had separated intentionally, and one was going to go down below, and one on a ridge to flush out some deer behind the pond, and he was never seen again. Since that day, said the newspaper, in 2018, his family have been working with police and local volunteers to try to piece together what had happened that day. The family said they'd been searching for the last couple of years and hadn't found a thing. No clue, no rifle, no boots, no cell phone, nothing. And The newspaper said it was almost as though he and his equipment simply vaporised. According to his daughter, her father was dressed brightly at the time in an orange jacket, red sweatshirt and orange hat. Speaking to St. Paul's Pioneer Press, Peltier's son David, who owns a crane company, said they typically find lost people within a half mile of their last known location. Peltier had no supplies with him when he vanished, no backpack and no water. His daughter said to have seen no trace of him, to have no signs, is so bizarre. He's been hunting all his life. He grew up on a farm and loved the outdoors. He would have known to fire his gun. He would have left a sign. Forty-year researcher of the 1950s, Harold T. Watkins, related an incident in the summer of 1905 in which three young German men from Berlin University, who were students of seismology, went to an isolated township of farmers and fishermen on the northeastern coast of Iceland. They left on horseback to explore the wild, rugged region. When they set out, it was sunny and bright and they were in high spirits, sharing entertaining stories as they rode along. After some time they came to a stop at a small group of farmsteads where they planned to disembark and go for a swim in the lake. Then they planned to pitch their tent along its sandy shore. A farmer warned the young men that this area had an evil reputation. This place is uncanny, said the farmer. And in twenty years I've known only three people who ventured in here and they would not stop here even one night. They returned here saying they did not like the atmosphere on the shore where you plan to camp. The Germans asked him why. The farmer noted the glances between the Germans, conveying disbelief, and showed that he was actually annoyed. All I will say is that this place is uncanny. I and my forebears have lived here for more than 300 years, and I tell you, young gentlemen, that I myself would not spend a night here for 10,000 gilden. The German men laughed. We're students of science, not connoisseurs of old wives' tales. If you mean spooks are here, such things have no place in our philosophy. So have a good day and with that the Germans spurred on their horses and rode off laughing. The farmer knew the region, they did not, and he did not share their light-heartedness. In due course the three Germans reached the shores of the hot lake from which the steam rose. They pitched their tent and sent away the native guide with their horses. Come back in a week's time, they told him. We have food enough to last until then. The guide, casting a gloomy look on the young men, left at a gallop as if he had a desire to put as much distance as possible between him and the spot where they were. well, two of the Germans went out on the lake in a collapsible dinghy, they were going to gather data on the temperature and depth of the lake. The third man, who was their leader, walked along the shore, examining the rocks, and becoming quite absorbed in what he was doing. About half an hour later, he turned around to look across the lake at his friends, but there were no sign of them, or the dinghy and the whole lake was visible from shore to shore. They couldn't have landed on the further bank and wandered inland, for he would have seen them and the dinghy. He shouted out repeatedly, but all the answers he got in return was just the echo of his own voice. Where were his two friends? What had become of them, he wondered. He roamed the sandy beach for an hour or more, and then as night fell, he went into his tent. He had no ability as a tracker and no map of the region, and he feared that if he tried to follow the track taken by their guide, he would just become hopelessly lost in what the Fortean Howard Watkins calls the Fay Wilderness, which was many miles from habitation. Says Watkins, it may be surmised that he spent a very bad night. He began to fancy that he could see, out of the corner of his eye, shapeless things watching him and waiting. Fear, in its most elemental shape, seized him, and against it none of his science and rationality could prevail. He peered out over the dark and stealthy waters of the lake. He had a rifle and some ammunition, and towards midnight he began to fire at shadows in the blackness. All that is definitely known, says Watkins, is that the guide, when he returned with the horses a week later, found a demented man and had to gallop back for help. A search party was organised, and in a boat they dragged the lake, but no trace of the missing men or the dinghy was found. 43-year-old trucker Donald Duger was last seen in Warroad, Minnesota, at just after 5am on August 12th, 2012, At the time of his disappearance, he lived in Russia, Minnesota and worked for a trucking company based in Warad. It would later be reported that he had just returned from a long-haul trip and was unloading his personal belongings from his work truck to transfer them to his own vehicle, then drive home. It was around 5am when he called his sister, then called 911, to report activity around his truck according to the The Vanished podcast. In Duga's 911 call, he told the police operator that someone was messing around outside his truck. In the call, he says, there's movement and what possibly sounds like him saying, I don't know what they are for sure. A police car was dispatched to his location and when the cop arrived, Duga told him that he saw approximately 10 people run off dressed in camouflage, and that he heard one of them speaking about a needle. Six days later, his car was found abandoned inside Beltrami Island State Forest, stuck on a tree stump on an ATV trail. Footprints led southwards away from the vehicle towards Winner Forest Road. Later, a camouflage hunting glove would be identified as belonging to him, and it was found about two miles from his car, along with shoe prints believed to be his. Ground and air searches failed to find any sign of Duggar, however, and authorities asked hunters in the forest to be on the lookout for any signs of him, along with, what they said, anything unusual, such as clothing or any items, that seemed out of place. Tracker dogs failed to locate him. Hunters turned up no sign of him. Park Rapids Enterprise newspaper said the thick terrain is not suitable for a walkthrough type search and there's no phone coverage at all. Helicopters, horses and inmates from Russo County Jail all failed in their efforts to locate him. Valley News Live reporter asked Russo County Sheriff Steve Gust any ideas what he would have been doing out here in the middle of the forest? To which Gust replies, no reason why he'd be out here. Big mystery. Disappearance unknown, and he's still missing. So I came across a very unusual disappearance that I wanted to go into, involving a young man who began to have some very strange experiences as he was driving before completely vanishing in the Steens Mountain region of Southeast Oregon. This was two thousand and thirteen, and the story begins for Dustin Self, age nineteen, when he began to become fascinated with TV shows about living in the wilderness and living off the grid and he began to get a craving for experiencing this way of life himself, at least for a while. Later, his mother would say that Dustin became particularly enamoured with the biographical movie Into the Wild about a man called Christopher McCantless, who took off into the Alaska wilderness after getting rid of all of his personal belongings, his money, his car, before entering Denali National Park with just minimal supplies, hoping to live off the land. During this time in the forest, McCandless came across an abandoned bus on the eastern banks of the Shoshana River, and he used it as a makeshift shelter. Months later, he would be found dead off the Stampede Trail, north of the boundary of the National Park. It was determined that he starved to death, although it was also speculated that he could have died of poisoning after eating wild potatoes. Well, in Dustin Self's case... It was reported that as well as wanting to try to live off the land for a while, he'd also become interested in a church in Oregon, which practised a South American religion that used hallucinogenic tea as a sacrament. Although both his mother and the church itself said that Dustin never actually went to the church. In February 2013, Dustin left his family home in the Oklahoma suburb of Piedmont in his Toyota pickup truck. In March 2013 his pickup truck was found in Steen's Mountain by the foreman of Juniper Ranch a few miles north of the location, one month after his father had reported him missing. The last known contact from Dustin was reported in the Bend Bulletin of Oregon. Dustin self they say sent a text to his ex-girlfriend March the 16th saying he was lost. Hallucinations rocked his brain. He'd seen plants running around, he wrote. Self was about 1,500 miles from his home, according to a Harvey County Sheriff's report. He thought he was near Denio, Nevada. He wasn't. His pickup truck, they say, was teetering on an embankment along a seldom-travelled road winding through Stonehouse Canyon on the mountain. However, they continue, rather than lead to Self's whereabouts... The discovery of the truck only fed the mystery. The Sheriff's Department found snacks and energy drinks in Dustin's truck, along with a GPS and his laptop. His sleeping bag, a Sub-Zero one, a green tent and cell phone were gone. Search crews were brought in and they scoured the terrain around the canyon, but they found no sign of Dustin, nor any of his belongings. Efforts were made to ping his cell phone, but this proved fruitless. David Glorup, Harvey County Sheriff, said, We never found him, his tent or sleeping bag. And the bulletin says, The road on which Dustin's truck was found splits off East Dean's Mountain Road, passes over a cattle guard and winds up the mountainside, crisscrossing the creek. Well, it's a rugged road where the going would have been so slow. His truck had reached two and a half miles up the road, which the bulletin says could have been snow-covered at the time, and it was muddy. The truck had slid off the road, and when it was found there were blizzard conditions. His mother told newspapers that while Dustin was very prepared before he set out, and he had bought the best gear, he'd only camped with his family for a couple of days at a time before. The bulletin says the only possible clue they found in the search for Dustin were the remnants of a warming fire under a rock about 200 yards uphill from the truck on April the 21st, although it wasn't clear if Dustin had made that fire. And they say almost as big a mystery as where Self is now is why his truck ended up where it did. Up the mountain from where Dustin's truck was found, there are a couple of cabins spread far apart, which are owned by a ranching family in the area, but searchers found no evidence that Dustin had broken into either of the cabins or taken any food from them. The bulletin spoke with Sandra Downs, who passed Dustin's truck early in the morning of March 15th at Field Station, a gas station 50 miles south of Stonehouse Road the day before his last text message. She said he mentioned to her that he had plans to head to Lakeview, 100 miles west. Darrell Williams, president of Harvey County Search and Rescue, used a GPS at Fields Garage to plot the route to Lakeview and it gave directions to Stonehouse Road, which was where Dustin ended up. And so it appeared very possible that Dustin's GPS had sent him in the wrong direction. But Williams wondered why, when Dustin arrived at Stonehouse Road, following the GPS directions, did he then turn onto the road and start the incline when it was such a rough, uneven, muddy road and possibly snow-covered. Dustin's vehicle was a two-wheel drive, but Williams said that kind of road needed a four-wheel drive, and he added that it was only drivable about three months of the year. we well, fast forward to October 2014, Autumn of the following year, and a deer hunter stumbled across skeletal remains on Steen's mountain. They would soon be identified as Dustin's self. His wallet was there too. The New York Daily News reported that the deer hunter was crawling through the rocky steep terrain in search of deer. The location of Dustin's remains was seven miles from his truck. Authorities believed he died of exposure, but Oregon Live say questions remain in his death. His remains showed the young man had hunkered down in the trees and stripped his clothes before he died. This, of course, could mean that he was suffering from hypothermia and his behaviour was paradoxical undressing. Oregon Live reported that the hunter who found Dustin's remains, Geoffrey Neal, had spotted a deer and was trying to sneak up on it, according to search-and-rescue lead Williams. He cut through a grove of eight feet quaking aspens. First he found a coat, then a pair of pants, then a leg bone. As far as we could tell, said Williams, he had no clothes on. The coat contained a Toyota key, a cell phone and cash, the sheriff's report said. The next day's search yielded more items, including Dustin's driver's licence and credit card. Strangely, however, Oregon Live reports, Williams said the recovery team did not find a tent or sub-zero sleeping bag. Oregon State Medical Examiner, Dr. Karen Goodson, told them there's no evidence of any injuries to his bones and added that they were not able to determine exactly when he died. His mother told Oregon Live, I can't figure out what happened. There's no logical reason why he didn't use his vehicle for shelter or find shelter down lower. He knew the first rule of survival was shelter. Dustin's ex-girlfriend, Belle Taylor, said that while Dustin had been inspired by the story of Christopher McCandless, he believed his mission came more from the David Icke book, Human Beings Get Off Your Knees, in which the author outlines conspiracy theories about government and society. Dustin wanted, she said, to find a place off-grid where the government couldn't track him, and that was why he'd headed to Oregon. His mother counted, though, that she'd spoken with Dustin about the David Icke book, but didn't feel it overly influenced him, while his father, Victor, told Oregon Live that Dustin's inspiration for McCardless was overblown. He said, I think he was just on a 19-year-old's adventure, and he reflected on the fact that Dustin's GPS may have misdirected him. He said he had tried to give Dustin a GPS messenger before he left, which could send out an SOS and give his location at the touch of a button. While well, Oregon Live simply end their report with, Self and Tyler are left to grieve and wonder the unknown? And here's probably why. Although the sheriff's report lists Dustin's last contact as a text message to his ex-girlfriend, Val Taylor, she told Oregon Live that Dustin phoned her at 6.15am on the day he went missing. At the time, she was returning from Disney World with her family. She took his call as they were waiting to board a flight from Florida. She said he was getting worse and worse. His conversations were getting weirder and weirder so I went into the bathroom to talk to him so my parents couldn't overhear what he was saying. She told the newspaper that he told her he had been driving around a town for five hours and could not find how to get out. She said he said there were devil worshippers at every gas station he stopped at to get help and that all the plants and animals were dead everywhere and he was trying to bring them back to life. He was really, really upset and really scared. And then the line went dead. On April the 5th, 2017, a female hiker was walking along the Sull Dock Hot Springs Road in the Daniel J. Evans Wilderness Area of Olympic National Park when she spotted something in the bushes. As she looked more closely, she recognised what it was, a bike with a trailer behind it. She recognised it because she had seen a young man riding it a couple of hours earlier, although she couldn't see the young man now. When she saw a ranger a little later, she mentioned this to him. The following day, the ranger noticed that the bike and trailer were still there and appeared to be in exactly the same position. The ranger managed to identify who the bike belonged to from a notebook that was there, along with an array of camping equipment. The scene looked as though the man to whom everything belonged, 22-year-old Jacob Grey, was oddly interrupted, the ranger thought, because everything was in exactly the same position. A tarpaulin lay on the floor, surrounded by camping utensils. There was also one strange detail. Four arrows had been stuck in the ground, all facing from east to west, though where these arrows were actually pointing to and what it meant, the ranger had no idea. Jacob's bicycle appeared to be in good working order, with no damage to it and no flat tyres. A search effort was organised, but it wasn't until a week later that an official search was carried out. On April the 12th, tracks were found that searchers believed could be Jacob's. On April the 15th, a pair of shorts were discovered a few miles downstream in the river although they couldn't be identified as Jacob's. Jacob's father helped search the river himself, donning a wetsuit. Then, on August 10th, 2018, 18 months later, a team of biologists studying marmots came across skeletal remains, camping gear and a wallet up on a treeless ridge above Lake Ho. Eventually, these remains would be identified as Jacob Grey. This location was 15 miles from his bike and trailer, and much higher up too, in very rugged terrain, which at the time of Jacob's disappearance would have been covered with snow. His father, Randy, said Jacob's clothes were found scattered along the ridgeline. Jacob's cause of death was determined as inconclusive by Clallam County Coroner's Office, with no clear cause of death. Assistant Coroner Talena Sundane told local newspapers the cause and manner of death could not be determined. Well, John Billman, writing for Biking Magazine, describes Jacob's second-hand yellow and red child's trailer, loaded with pots, pans, blankets, fuel bottles, dehydrated meals, sleeping bag and a tent, among other things. He seemed well prepared, although Billman points out that the bike was very heavy and too small for him. Tracker dogs had been brought in when the official search began. Journalist Billman kept in close contact with Jacob's family members during the long months he was missing. His sister Mallory told Billman, He's a really athletic surfer. She said Jacob was an introvert. He was really lost, she said. He didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. He sought answers in the Bible. Jacob's Bible was found with his bike and trailer. It's a mystery how and why his body was found where it was, high up on a barren ridge that was covered with snow when he vanished. He'd circled Isaiah 34:14, says Billman, which says, And all the desert creatures shall meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also shall cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster shall settle there.